My guest today is a friend and colleague, Dr. Alok Sharon. He's the director of spine and orthopedics at New Jersey Spine and Wellness. He's also the thought leader and the developer behind Awake Spine Surgery and how that has become a branded and proprietary surgical protocol for minimally invasive spine surgery, as well as the merge into outpatient spine surgery. Join me today as I talk to Alok and we discuss how he developed this protocol, what he thinks about branding, why it's counterintuitive, but it doesn't have to be for surgeons, and a little bit more about his thought process moving forward. All right, Dr. Sharon, you're at Central Park. You obviously are a resident of New York City. What is that experience like in the midst of COVID-19 as we're speaking? Well, thank you, Matt. It's a, it's a great question, and thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. Um, it's been very interesting to see the evolution of New York City over the past uh, month. I don't live too far from Central Park. Biking through Central Park is one of the big, biggest joys I have um, in the morning. Initially, when I was biking or wa even walking through, through the park about a month ago, when COVID was first starting, you can see a huge drop off in um, the numbers of people and the behavior of different people in the park versus each other. And that was really just a lot of fear. And as COVID is getting under control and the fear is subsiding and confidence is starting to increase, um, while the number of people hasn't increased greatly, you can see how the behavior of everyone is changing. So for me, going through Central Park has been fascinating because it's sort of been a bellwether for me to understand the mood of New Yorkers by watching how they behave with other people and then how they're behaving with themselves while they're walking or biking through Central Park. We're going to have other surgeons that are listening to this podcast. And so I would ask you, what's a painful lesson or even a positive lesson that you personally have learned that you could share with other orthopedic surgeons that COVID-19 has taught you? It's incredible, right? I mean, this is this COVID experience has been good and bad. Um, I've learned a lot, both personally and professionally throughout this whole process. Um, from a professional perspective, I think what orthopedic surgeons have to begin to think about is what skill sets can they offer beyond just delivering great surgical care? And what I mean by that is this. Um, as an orthopedic surgeon, as a spine surgeon, of course, I truly enjoy taking care of people who need spine surgery. But the reality is, is a small percentage of people with, let's say, sciatica require surgery. And so if you think about it as a funnel, you can imagine that there are a ton of people out there who have sciatica who are sort of at the top of the funnel. They require physical therapy and chiropractic and other types of modalities of treatment. And as a surgeon, you're at the bottom of the funnel. Especially during moments like this and the COVID epidemic, it's clear that you want to be closely aligned with a group of providers who can provide that conservative care. What COVID has taught me, the painful experience, is how critical it is to be closely aligned with some conservative care type of providers. Because if not, all you're relying on is being at the bottom of the funnel. And it's a very crowded space on top of that funnel. 
I've argued in the past, and I was to argue again, that what we have to do in healthcare is begin to change sort of the organizational structure around healthcare. And we have to move towards building centers of excellence around particular diseases. It's going to become harder and harder to be just a lone orthopedic surgeon waiting for patients who need surgery to come to your door. And instead, what we have to transition to is a model where we're associated with the center of excellence, for example, sciatica or center of excellence for spine care, and be closely aligned with other providers so that we can deliver all types of care for that patient who has a particular medical condition. I think that's been really enlightening um, for me to understand and watch throughout this whole process. Yeah, you've done a good job of pivoting and making sure that you're relevant at kind of every touch point of the patient experience. My next question is, how should other surgeons think about avoiding the traditional money pit of marketing during this time period? And as the dust settles and as elective surgeries begin to occur again, what advice would you give someone to avoid the traditional money pit of marketing? Marketing is a really interesting term. It's really um, because of your mentorship and advice that I've really learned a lot over these past few years. It's not a concept that we really uh, learn well in medical school and training, but I've been fortunate to be able to pick your brain and learn so much about marketing. I think that a traditional method of marketing, for example, putting up an ad in a newspaper, putting up a billboard, is, as you say, a money pit. I think at this point in time, with all the different digital tools we have, you can become more refined on attracting the right type of people. I mean, if you think about this, think about how much the cost of a billboard ad would be. You don't know who's seeing that billboard ad, if the people who are seeing that billboard ad are relevant to the business that you're offering. I think nowadays, with digital marketing and the tools that we have, it's very clear that you can really sort of focus and cone in on making sure that the ad, quote, ad that you put up, is really focused on the type of uh, patients that you want to serve. And what I would say to orthopedic surgeons and doctors in general is you can try to be a little bit more refined and discreet in where you put your limited dollars when it comes to marketing. And that using um, traditional tools like a billboard, magazine ad, and other types of ads, while I'm not downplaying it completely, there are better places where you can get a higher ROI uh, when you're doing marketing. Awake Spinal Fusion. Unpack that for us. Talk about how you came up with the idea as solving a problem, a patient problem that you saw. And walk us through, first of all, it's a brilliant name, then walk us through how that procedural name or that branded and proprietary name has enabled you to offer up a unique perspective, process, protocol, procedure, etc. cetera. Sure. So... Um, there, are, there are, of course, so many different aspects to awake spinal fusion. Um, as a spine surgeon, first and foremost, um, I've evolved my practice uh, to doing more and more minimally invasive type surgery. Why? Because I can see now that we can deliver great results better and faster using smaller incisions. Previously, I had a significant practice in spinal oncology, and we developed a novel 
minimum-invasive approach to taking care of patients with spine tumors. By doing that, we were able to get patients with tumors and cancer in their spine um, to recover faster. So I, I'm a big believer in minimum-invasive spine surgery. In regards to awake spine surgery, um, the reason why that procedure evolved was simple. Um, I was involved in a great research study where we showed that patients who undergo general anesthesia, elderly patients, tend to have higher rates of delirium. And that struck me because we knew from, let's say, cardiac surgery, um, debilitate, the debilitating effects of, let's say, being on the pump and then developing pump head. And so a lot of cardiac surgeons evolved to doing cardiac surgery off pump, not using the pump. I think now in spine surgery, what we have to think about is how can we get patients to recover better and faster? And part of that will be not giving them a higher incidence of delirium from general anesthesia. So awake surgery first started by me, by my desire to deliver the same type of spine surgery under regional anesthesia. Um, during grad school up in Dartmouth, we learned a lot about the notion of experience and how we're currently transitioning to an experienced economy. What I really enjoyed about the notion of the regional anesthesia was the fact that patients were awake. There was a patient of mine who had come in, and when he had, he had specifically sought me out because of the regional and spinal anesthesia. He'd also asked me if I can bring in headphones and listen to music. And after his surgery, he woke up and said, that was one of the most comfortable things I've ever done. I said, what do you mean? He goes, mm -hmm. well, think about it. I was laying down. Um, although you were working on my spine, I didn't feel anything. I was listening to music. The lights were down. It was a very comfortable experience. And so I thought to myself, I was struck really by the fact that I can do a spine surgery and also make it a comfortable experience, mainly because the patient is awake. And after that, and subsequently after that, we've asked many patients to come in with their headphones and listen to music. And you can see now, not only are these patients waking up and they're in less pain, but it's remarkable, but some of them are actually smiling and they look very comfortable. And so I understand now that we're in a different era now. We're in this experience economy. So the fact that I can do a spine surgery under regional anesthesia, make it less painful and make it a comfortable experience for the patients, truly think it's really fulfilling an unmet need that we haven't thought about a lot in spine surgery. Let's talk virtual surgeon education. I know that as a surgeon, you're on the receiving end of this virtual education, but you're also launching your own awake spinal fusion virtual course. My question is, is this an old idea with a new importance? What are your thoughts as someone that is teaching? And then what are your thoughts for industry and other surgeons? I think that surgical education has to evolve. The traditional form of doing surgical education has been to go to a weekend course, pay X amount of dollars, take a day or two off your practice, and then perhaps you learn a technique, which you may, not, may or may not be able to bring back to your practice. Um, surgical education has to evolve. and I have young kids, and so I'm very much in tune with uh, digital education right now. Now with digital education, we have the ability to cone in or focus in the content based off of where the student stands. So for example, if you go to a weekend course, you can have novice surgeons, surgeons who are sort of 10 years into practice and surgeons who are 20 years into practice 
but they're all being taught by the same faculty member. There's no segmentation of the content you deliver based off of the experience of the student. Now I think we need to evolve. We need to, one, realize that there's a tremendous cost in taking a weekend off to go to a surgical course, so we can, we can shift a lot to um, online. With the new digital tools that are out there, we can start to segment our customers, our students, and really deliver content which is appropriate to their skill level. And then beyond that, what's so key about digital in general, especially as it relates to education, is our ability to constantly engage people. So no longer should we need to just be able to go to a course for one weekend out of a year, but be able to deliver surgical content in bite-sized chunks and be able to engage that student multiple times throughout the year to really ensure that they're understanding and learning those techniques. So I think now what we'll see with surgical education is, especially during this COVID crisis, but even before that, we'll be able to use the digital tools to enhance and fundamentally transform the way that we can deliver uh, surgical content. One of the avatars for this podcast is a fast-track medical device leader. We use this term relationship building with surgeons, but as a surgeon, what's your advice to innovative medical device leaders about building relationship with their surgeons during this current season? That's a great question. Um, Again, I think that historically, um, implant companies have found it to be more and more challenging to develop relationship with the surgeons for a variety of different reasons. Um, the inability to go into a doctor's office, the limited time. But the truth is that online, if you think about it, you develop um, engagement with so many different online tools. We don't search for information on the internet, we Google information. We don't buy paper towels, we Amazon Prime uh, paper towels. So you're already engaged with digital companies. I think what implant companies now have to start thinking about is that How can they engage their surgeon customers using these new mechanisms, using digital tools? And they're out there. There are obviously great examples of how different companies have been able to engage their their customers using digital tools. I think now implant companies will have to fundamentally shift and transform themselves and think about what does it mean to actually engage the surgeon outside the hospital, outside their office. We have a modern-day definition of branding. It's entitled, Doctor, Who You Say You Are, Who Your Patients Say You Are, and Who Google Says You Are. So my next question is, is branding counterintuitive for most surgeons? And if so, why are surgeons so reluctant when it comes to developing their own personal or professional brand awareness? That's a challenging question. I mean, um, Not quite sure why that is the case. Um, I think that if I could take one step back, one of the challenges with branding in general is understanding your uniqueness. Um, Branding really works well when you can figure out what your uniqueness is, and more importantly, what is your unique value proposition, meaning that what unique service or product you can deliver. I don't think that physicians in general think about their uniqueness. They just deliver, think about delivering a particular service, and that's great. There's no question about that. But I think that if the field is going to move forward, what physicians have to constantly be thinking about is 
what is the unmet need out there and how can I deliver that unmet need or how can I solve the problem for that patient in a unique way? And if you can do that, at that point, you already solved a unique problem and in essence, you developed a brand. I think that line of thinking most physicians don't think about. But I think that if you want to be strategic about it, you have to start thinking about what are the unmet needs out there and what is the unique value proposition you can deliver. Once you go through that line of thinking, developing a brand becomes easy. So you have an MBA from Dartmouth to complement your medical education. Talk about the uniqueness of that Dartmouth MBA program and how it's attracted other innovative orthopedic surgeons. And then unpack for us how it's really shaped the way that you view yourself as an orthopedic surgeon and also as a healthcare entrepreneur. Sure. Thank you for that question. Um, so the degree I completed in 2015 was called the Master's in Healthcare Delivery Science. It was a degree that combined classes from the Tuck Business School along with the uh, Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy. So it was a unique degree because what it did was teaches how to use business skills to solve healthcare problems. For me personally, it was um, a transformative experience. As a surgeon, I think a lot about how to take care of patients' pain and the problems associated with pain. Someone comes to see me with a spine problem, and I have a particular method for trying to solve their problem, plus or minus surgery. What the Dartmouth degree did for me was give me a skill set and tools that I can use to solve business problems. So meaning, how can I solve problems that affect thousands of people at a large scale, not just one individual? And for me, that was really important because I think fundamentally the problem that we have in healthcare now is a business problem, meaning that we don't have enough money in the system to provide the type of care that we need. And the COVID experience really highlighted that. And so the question is, how, how can we use our business and management skills to solve this problem in healthcare? For example, um, every, every business starts with trying to understand who the customer is, what is it that the customer values, how can you deliver that value? How can you deliver a sort of unique value proposition? For me, the way I used my Dartmouth training was to think about spine surgery and what were the unmet needs. I think spine surgery is great. For the right patient, it's incredible. But there are some unmet needs. I think that there are issues of safety associated with spine surgery. Of course, cost and cost effectiveness and the issue with experience. And so for me, the awake spinal fusion procedure is a safer procedure because we avoid general anesthesia. It's certainly more cost-effective as it helps patients mobilize sooner and for many patients even go home the same day. And then ultimately, it delivers a great experience because the patients are awake and they can listen to headphones. So the way that I use my Dartmouth training was to think about what were the unmet needs in spine surgery and using a combination of clinical knowledge, um, operations management, and of course, the issues around experience, we basically have been trying to solve this unmet need for the patients. That's well said. I appreciate that answer. 
So my final question, Alok, is you and I, we get to interact during the week and we're constantly discussing ideas and new ideas and how to improve that patient experience and add some entrepreneurial ventures to that. So my final question is what profession, other than being an orthopedic spine surgeon, would you like to attempt? That's a great question. And unfortunately, it's not top of mind right now, but maybe in the future. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I really enjoy um, reading and listening to stories. And in particular, I, I like to um, read about uh, political biographies. Um, I think that the job that I would have would be to perhaps give tours to individuals on historical sites. Um, in college, I was fortunate to uh, be a, an intern on Capitol Hill, worked in the congressman's office, and besides um, answering the phone and returning faxes, sending faxes, the other job I had was to give tours of the Capitol, and I really enjoyed that because each time I went on a tour, I would tell a unique story about different parts of the Capitol, and I think that maybe when the time comes, I would be able to go back and perhaps give tours of D.C., give tours of New York, give tours of um, different historical places, but more importantly, be able to tell stories. What does being ridiculously caring mean to you at this current season that we find ourselves in? I think that it comes down to the issue of empathy. That's, it's a, that's a very easy word to say, but truly trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes and trying to, for example, understand the problem that they want to solve, not easy. But I think in this day and age, with everything that's going on in the world, what I think is what I think caring is going to be is how to truly understand the listening skills required so that you could be empathetic and perhaps solve someone else's problems. That to me what care is what caring would look like. What book that you're reading is currently on your night shelf? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, there's a few, but the one I just recently started reading was The Making of an Idealist by Samantha Powers. She was, the, um, um, she was Obama's um, UN ambassador. Um, I find her story to be fascinating because she was uh, a zealot about a lot of her thoughts and she ran into the practical realities of the government and had to really uh, tone down some of her ideological thinking. And so for me, I find that book to be fascinating because we all have a lot of ideas, but unfortunately sometimes when you hit reality, you've got to reshape those ideas and you've got to adapt and you've got to be agile and conform. So for me, it's been, it's been a fascinating read to see how someone who is as idealistic as her how she was able to conform and, and really succeed um, in the U.S. government. If I had your smartphone in front of me and I went to your music selection, what would be on there? Depends on the time of day. So when I'm biking through New York City, I have Alicia Keys playing Empire State of Mind, and I have Dave Matthews. Nice. Um, I am a big acoustic guitar fan. And so I have a, I have a really neat uh, playlist with uh, Dave Matthews, which gets me in the mood. 
but it really depends. If I'm just going for a, a walk with the dogs, it's going to be more um, mellowed out type music. And if it's a, a situation where I need to get pumped up for the day, it's going to be more um, U2 and genres like that. What's your favorite sound? In what context? Any context you choose. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, Nora Jones being sung on a really high fidelity speaker. I like the clarity um, associated with that. That to me would be the ideal scenario if I had to pick one sound. I was asked that question, Alok. I wasn't smart enough to think of it myself. I was asked that question and then I borrowed it. And my response was Billie Holiday on a really good stereo. So similar answer. <laughs> well, Alok, I thank you so much for just sharing your insight with us. And at the time of this recording, it's on a weekend and we're in the midst of this you know, pandemic and you're in ground zero again. New York City. How often has New York City been ground zero for different events, crisis, you know, in our history? So I thank you so much for taking this time to be with us. Well, thank you. And I really want to thank you for the opportunity to be part of the Brand Rounds um, podcast. Um, over the past, uh, I think it's been maybe two, three years now that we've been engaged. I've learned so much about marketing and branding and truly hope that you can help more physicians like you've helped me understand the value of that. So thank you. Thanks, Loke.